Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it's either yes or no. Should gas stoves eventually become banned? Well, researchers at Stanford University estimate the millions of stoves in the United States emit as much climate pollution as about 500,000 gas-powered cars. And there are other studies that suggest there's a link to chemicals such as nitrogen dioxide-3 and formaldehyde, which can cause inflammation in the airways and may worsen asthma symptoms. So we'll talk about all that. Plus, we take a deeper dive into education-related annual reports. One of the challenges that we've heard from members is that they incur a lot of student loan debt, which makes if you're a new teacher and, and you have a lower salary, if you got to write a big check every month on your student loan, that adds some pressure. First up, findings from a teacher's survey reveals issues educators are faced with outside the classroom. Education reporter Martha Dalton will lead that discussion. Plus, the Atlanta-based organization Learn for Life reveals its annual state of education for Metro Atlanta. Now, important conversations coming up, but first this. At the time of this original broadcast, a Georgia State Patrol officer has been shot and is in surgery. That's after authorities say a man reportedly started firing shots while another multi-agency operation was taking place. Now, this was on Constitution Road in southeast Atlanta. This is the site for Atlanta's new first responder training facility. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation says it happened around 10 a.m. According to GBI, quote, one person fired shots at law enforcement. Law enforcement fired back. A Georgia State trooper was hit and taken to the hospital and is in surgery, as we said. One man was killed. This is an active investigation, close quote. We should report now coming at, the, at this time that it is believed that a protester who was aligned with the Cop City movement, those who are opposed to this facility, was the individual that was killed. The area has been the subject of debate, which plans to build a new Atlanta police training facility near the site of the former Atlanta prison farm. WABE's All Things Considered will have more on this and, of course, throughout the day. In other news, with federal and state dollars pouring in to help clean up and rebuild after the recent severe storms and tornadoes, Atlanta's Office of the Better Business Bureau is warning that there could be an increase in scams targeting impacted residents as we hear from Christopher Austin. Several communities were hit by last week's severe storms, which moved from South Alabama northeast across Georgia. Some areas saw tornadoes and significant damage to scores of homes and businesses. The Atlanta office of the Better Business Bureau says beware of -of out-of-town contractors, which it calls storm chasers, who pressure residents to make quick decisions and payments to repair their homes and may not be as reputable as other contractors. The office advises to do your homework on contractors, work with your insurance company if necessary, and make temporary repairs until you feel comfortable with the right contractor. Christopher Alston, 
WABE News. And some important information there. Now, as it relates to those severe storms and tornadoes, FEMA's top officials are getting their first look at the damage from last week's deadly tornadoes and those severe storms. And at this hour, Deputy Administrator Eric Hooks is touring some of the hardest hit areas in Spalding County. Now, yesterday, President Joe Biden made federal disaster assistance available to people and businesses affected by all these storms and tornadoes. That's in Butts, Henry, Jasper, Meriwether, Newton, Spalding and Troop counties. And the state's economist is asking lawmakers to be cautious as they wrangle over Governor Brian Kemp's $32 billion proposed budget. As we hear from our politics reporter Raul Bali, money may not be coming in like it used to. Dr. Jeffrey Dorfman says despite the $6.6 billion surplus last year, the state cannot expect the same amount of money to pour in this year. Last fiscal year, we collected over $3 billion in capital gains taxes in the state of Georgia. If most people are like me, we didn't make any money in the stock market in 2022. So we're not expecting to see any of that $3 billion in capital gains show up when people file their tax returns this year. Dorfman is also concerned about the amount of corporate income tax that will come in this year versus last year's $2.5 billion. There has been a bump in income tax and sales tax revenues because inflation has pushed up salaries and the cost of goods. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capital. And you're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100 mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Gas or electric? Pick a side. Why? Well, add the Consumer Protected Product Safety Commission, rather, to the all-electric side. That's because its research, they say, found emission from gas stoves can be hazardous. The agency said it was, quote, looking for ways to reduce related indoor air quality hazards, close quote, and that caused quite a stare. And for many nationwide, there was a collective Hey, I'll never give up my gas stoves. Well, keep listening. In fact, the chairman of the CPSC had to issue a statement last week clarifying that he, quote, is not looking to ban gas stoves. And he says there's no effort underway to do so. That's why you have to rely on credible media. He didn't say that. That's what I'm saying. So today we'll try to turn the temperature down a bit. Ah, come on, who wrote that? And get the facts on gas stove safety with the author of a Stanford University study that suggests the climate and health impacts of natural gas stoves are greater than first thought. So just to let y'all know, we also invited the American Gas Association, which represents more than 200 local energy companies to join the conversation. 
but they were unable to provide a spokesperson. However, the association says it's committed to the safe and reliable delivery of clean natural gas to more than 73 million customers throughout the U.S. So let's go back to the other side. We'll begin with Stanford professor Rob Jackson. He teaches at Stanford School of Earth, Energy and Environmental Sciences and is the co-author of the Stanford study. So we'll ask him. Professor Jackson, thanks for taking the time. Hi, Rose. Thanks for having me. See what happens when y'all release a study. You got people all upset and folks saying, you'll never take my gas stove away. Let's start there. What's been the reaction after these studies and reports? Was it, do you think that some people would just, it was too alarmist or what? Well, I think honestly, no one has proposed to ban gas stove. That's the meme that's gone around. Mm -hmm. And the, the Public Safety Commission did say they were going to look into the health aspects of gas stove usage, but um, it sort of blew up when this narrative went around that mm -hmm. the government's going to take away your gas stove. And that's that's not true. And that's unfortunate. Let's back up a little bit about what, tell folks what you all do out there at Stanford and what you were doing with your research. For our appliance work, we've been working in my group for a couple of years now, looking at the climate effects, but also the indoor air pollution effects from gas appliances indoors. And what I would start by saying is that, you know, we, we have furnaces, mm -hmm. uh, uh, water heaters and stoves are the primary gas appliances people use. But furnaces and water heaters, if you have a gas appliance in your home, vent outdoors, they're required to, to vent the pollution outdoors. And we don't stand over the tailpipe exhaust of a car breathing, breathing the pollution, mm -hmm. but we do stand over a stove and breathe in the flames directly. And I think that's where the link to health comes in. You know, what's what's generated in those flames and the fact that we're breathing them. Can we talk about that for our listeners who are saying, OK, Professor, what is coming off of these gas stoves that we're breathing? What are those chemicals? I mentioned a few of them earlier, but I want you to take it further. Well, beyond the greenhouse gases of carbon dioxide and methane, which are not an immediate health risk of, at the concentrations we see them in people's homes, we measure uh, NOx gases that are a risk, formaldehyde, mm -hmm. carbon monoxide. NOx, for instance, uh, causes uh, can cause wheezing, difficulty breathing, coughing, and it, uh, there's good evidence that it leads to asthma, particularly in our kids and in the elderly. Mm -hmm. With this research, how did you all go about, I mean, I know that you that's been proven, but with your research, what you all were doing, how long did you, you conduct this research? And I guess, what were the metrics you were using to come up with your findings? Well, we uh, visited hundreds of homes so far, uh, uh, primarily in California, but we've uh, measured homes in Colorado. We're going to Houston next week mm -hmm. and looking at a number of cities. We have, uh, we go into people's homes. We bring our instruments to those homes. We turn on a gas oven, we turn on a gas burner, and we also uh, measure the potential pollution from electric appliances too. So we bring our instruments in, we turn a burner or oven on, we look at what happens to the concentrations of pollution pollutants in the air and how much is coming off a stove. When I read that you all estimate that methane leaking from stoves inside U.S. homes has the same climate impact, I'm quoting you here, as about 500,000 gasoline-powered cars, and that the stoves can expose people to respiratory disease, triggering pollutants. I don't want folks hear that. That can't be alarming, though. I mean, that's, that's a lot. That that analogy there is is quite something. It, it is. It was a surprise in our study on not just stoves, but water heaters, too. We found that most of the gas, that's, that would be methane, leaking out unburned in this case, 
uh, happens when the appliance is off and there's a very slow bleed into the air. And, and of course, most, most appliances aren't used most of the day. We only turn our stove on once in a while. And the same for our water heaters. Mm -hmm. So, and, and to be perfectly honest, that's only part of it. That's just the methane leaking into the home air. Mm -hmm. It doesn't include methane that's leaked as the gas and oil is brought out of the ground. And it doesn't include the carbon dioxide pollution from burning the gas from our, our appliances either. So it's substantially more than that, in fact. Professor, I have a question from a listener who asks, is there anything that uh, appliances should have to reduce the amount of these dangerous, they write, these dangerous chemicals coming from our, our gas stoves? Well, there are definitely things that we can do to protect ourselves and our families. Uh, from our work, there's nothing that, there's nothing we can do that stops uh, dangerous NOx gases from being generated in the flame. We find that when you turn the flame on, NOx forms, when you turn the flame up, uh, the amount of, of NOx formed is is uh, in direct proportion to the amount of gas burned. So if mm -hmm. you turn two burners on instead of one, you'll have twice as much NOx generated. But as the industry would say, we can definitely improve the ventilation in our homes. If you're mm -hmm. able to open a window every time you cook, that helps. I would strongly recommend that uh, listeners turn on their, their ventilation hoods every time they cook. Okay. And I would also ask that they check and see if their vent hood actually sends the pollution outdoors or does it just mix the air back into the kitchen? Because a surprising number of, of ventilation hoods that we test don't really do much to reduce risks and people don't use them. Only about a quarter or mm -hmm. a third of people turn them on. And I want to go back to something you just said a moment ago. You said you also are conducting studies and looking at electric stoves as well. So there's some potential harm harms there. What were you looking at? Well, we're doing a number of things. We're looking at the pollution that comes from the food. Uh, there are a number of uh, groups that suggest it's not the it's not the pollution from the fuel we need to worry about. Uh, it's it's coming from the food. Mm -hmm. And for some things like particulate pollution, there's there's a grain of truth in that. It's not uh, true, in my opinion, for for NOx gases and some of the other pollutants that we see. So we're looking at the food. We're we have to look at all all appliances equally, right? So we want we don't want to compare gas appliances to nothing. We want to compare them to older electric, newer induction stoves and, and other appliances in our homes. And that's what we're doing. I want to come out west to where you are for a moment because, and again, this caused a lot of roar. This was last year when it was announced that California would, I guess, become sort of the first state, and I use this in my air quotations, ban natural gas heaters, water heaters, and furnaces. Now, this one, from what I understand, this is like 2024, 2045, something like that. So what is it about this legislation in California that you think might have started a trend here? Well, I think it might. And, and let's, um, let's let me change the vocabulary a little bit. We talk about reach codes in California. Okay. And the difference between a ban and a reach code is a ban says, you know, you have to get rid of your gas stove, you know, today or mm -hmm. next year. And, and no one's proposing that. But there are now about 100 cities or more in California that have said, it, has said at some point in the future, perhaps 2035 or 2040, they will mandate that all new construction use in my opinion, safer and cleaner electric appliances mm -hmm. than, than gas appliances. That's very different to me than than a, a ban today, right? We mm -hmm. want to we want to have people um, have access to to cleaner technologies, and you don't want to pull out appliances that are still usable, ideally. And I, and I want to quote you here because I know you were quoted in the Washington Post as saying, "quote If you have the financial ability to swap out a gas stove for an electric induction cooktop, I do think it's a good idea." Close quote. 
you know, for some that may not be an issue, but for many households, you know, when it comes to something, um, a major purchase like that, you know, money is everyone doesn't have the same, as you know, everyone doesn't have the same access to, to income. So you're saying if you can, you think folks should swap out that gas stove for an election, electric. I do. And, and if if listeners have the means to do that, and I would say that I did that myself, mm-hmm. I was reluctant to 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 get rid of our gas stove um it was it wasn't at the end of its life it was it was perfectly usable but per, in, in honesty once we started measuring the pollution not just in my house but in the hundreds of other houses we were visiting i was sold on the, the importance of, of getting rid of that gas stove for myself and my family and i and i granted i do have the means to do that i'm fortunate to be able to do that other people who are renting or living in lower income neighborhoods may not be. And I think they need other help and other other protection. So do, through your lens, do you think this is something that ultimately might end up with up in Congress with, you know, they have to take a look at it? Or do you think it's something that states are going to have to individually take a lead on? I don't see the Congress addressing a particular type of appliance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a socially liberal fiscally conservative voter. I don't, you know, I don't like intervention in our lives any more than anyone else does, but I I don't see the Congress tackling an issue that specific um, anytime soon. I think it's more likely that uh, states and cities may, may tackle it. There are a number of states and cities that are already, um, have already passed these reach codes. New York is another. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are now 15 or 20 states that have passed laws saying that no reach code is legal or is allowed. And I think that's unfortunate. Well, look, we all love incentives, right? Uh, you know, tax credits and rebates. I mean, here in Georgia, at one point, you could get a pretty nice, you know, rebate if you were going to get an electric vehicle that went away. Now folks wanted to come back. That might be a way. I mean, look, folks love <laughs> Look, as a consumer, we love that, right? But if you're saying that it should not come to, to Congress making this an issue, but you have a state like California that's uh, slowly introducing some legislation. Do you see this being a problem, though? Do I see the legislation as being a problem? That, that we could see more legislation in in, in state at, at the state level coming in saying, hey, this is what we want. We think it's best for the health. I don't, yeah, I don't see that as a as a problem. I see that as a as a good thing. If we can provide incentives for people to to change their technology who lack the means to do it themselves or who may be renting renting where they live, I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. Um, no one wants their children to breathe any more NOx, carbon mm-hmm. monoxide or formaldehyde than they have to, right? And electrification eliminates these risks. So I, I, I said, I, I think what I meant before was I didn't see Congress passing a law that would ban mm-hmm. a particular type of appliance or pick a winner of a particular type of appliance. But in the Inflation Reduction Act, we have incentives for charging stations yeah. and electric vehicles and other things. I think incentives for for electrifying our appliances would be perfectly reasonable. All right. Well, I've got a lot of emails. I can't answer all these questions, uh, but folks do have a lot of questions. And I will tell you, uh, again, we just want to reiterate, folks, we're not telling you to get rid of your gas stove. See what happens, Professor, when I do a subject like this. We're not telling you to get rid of your, your gas stove, but we're just giving you information. So, uh Professor Rob Jackson, he teaches at Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Uh, he's an earth scientist, earth system scientist. What is an earth system scientist? Let's get into that before I really let you go. So I study 
the ways that people interact with the earth. So if I study greenhouse gas emissions, I have to place emissions from human activities in the context of what's coming out of the oceans and forests and soils. So it, which an earth system scientist tries to put the pieces together for what people are doing with what happens naturally. All right. And we'll have a link to y'all's report from our, la- our on our website as well. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. Thank you for clearing all thank- that up. Thank you, Rose. Closer Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The Professional Association of Georgia Educators, or PAGE, surveys its members every year. Now, that includes teachers, of course, other educators, principals, and school staff throughout Georgia. PAGE's senior education policy analyst, Claire Suggs, spoke to WABE's education reporter, Martha Dalton, about this year's results. Now, Suggs starts by explaining the purpose of sending out the survey. We send the survey out to all of our members every fall. Um, We have over 95,000 members and they're across the state of of Georgia. So they're working in rural communities and suburban communities and and in the metro areas as well. Um, And we want to understand both issues that we're hearing about from legislators, right? So we want it because we know we're gonna be going into the legislative session. So if there are issues that legislators are talking about, we wanna get feedback from educators on their perspective, but also we ask questions that we're hearing about from educators. So what our members across the state are are coming to us and they're raising concerns about issues. For example, for a number of years, they've raised concerns about providing mental health well-being support for students. And so we ask questions about school counselors um, in the survey, just as one example of both responding to concerns raised by members so that we better understand their concerns, but also what are we hearing at the at the General Assembly that we want to make sure we understand educators' perspectives so that we can explain that to lawmakers as they're making decisions. Speaking of some of those issues that teachers are concerned about, the majority of your respondents said there were not enough counselors to meet students' needs. So one of your recommendations is for the state to provide more funding for schools to be able to hire more counselors. Yes. And that is an issue around responding to students' mental health needs and just general well-being is is an issue that PAGE members across the state have raised for several years. And as you said, the majority of them did say when we asked that question this year, 69% of our current school counselors and social workers and psychologists said their schools don't have enough. And then classroom teachers, a majority of classroom teachers said the same thing. And this is, again, an issue they raised before the pandemic, but it's something that we're really hearing from members now in the wake of the pandemic, that students from elementary through high school, they really do need some additional support. And of course, classroom teachers need to focus on curriculum instruction. They're there to provide that. And so we need other professionals who can support students in other ways to really enable teachers to do their job and then have school counselors and social workers who can provide that supplemental support. Well, and speaking of letting teachers do their jobs, less than a third of respondents said that their workload is manageable most or all of the time. Less than a third. 
Yes. So what does that say? Well, I think it is a complicated job, but I think also um, the pandemic has accelerated some of the challenges. So even before the pandemic, for example, there were a lot of districts that were experiencing shortages of substitute teachers. And that has really soared since the onset of the pandemic. And what this means for a regular classroom teacher is if their colleague is out, that may mean that the classroom teacher has to give up a planning period or a lunch period because they're stepping in to cover someone else's class. Or, uh, you know, we've also heard back from members that, you know, they're getting that absent colleagues, you know, maybe 10 of that, that colleague's students are put into that teacher's class. So they went from a class of maybe 28 kids to suddenly with no, with no notice, they have 40 kids that day. The challenges associated with that, you know, and right now, of course, in the wake of the pandemic, districts and educators are working incredibly hard to support um, your mental health needs, of course, but also any learning gaps. And so teachers right now are really putting in extra time and effort. They're also being asked because they're doing a lot of districts are implementing a lot of support initiatives for students, which are needed, but that's extra work for teachers. So these are all important things, but it's just adding to a a very full workplace. Another highlight from the results that I thought was interesting is that almost 40% of teachers and then 62% of teachers' aides or paraprofessionals have trouble covering their expenses. And I'm curious with all the talk of one-time bonuses, you know, different districts are giving these one-time bonuses, $1,000 here, $2,000 here. The governor just announced that he plans to give all state employees $2,000. I'm wondering if those kind of one-time payments will help help them cover costs as an incentive, or if it needs to be something maybe that's more long-term, like built into the base of their salary, you know, where their salary grows every year as opposed to getting bonuses here and there. Well, I think, you know, the recent pay raises, you know, you know, in the governor's first term, he passed a total of $5,000 pay raise. You know, he in his inaugural address has proposed an additional pay raise. And certainly that is very, very valuable. It does help make teaching more attractive. I think one thing, though, is to keep in in mind is that, you know, teachers, like any other well-educated professional, you know, they have options outside of education. And so we really want to make sure that the education field is able to provide salaries that are competitive with other industries. And there's no question that, you know, this is really important progress, but we just, again, want to make sure that that teaching is really competitive and as attractive as other fields. And also salary is very, very important but there are other issues. Um, And so, you know, there may be other things like helping to offset the cost of earning a bachelor's degree and getting your teacher certification. One of the challenges that we've heard from members is that they incur a lot of student loan debt, which makes, if you're a new teacher and and you have a lower salary, if you got to write a big check every month on your student loan, that adds some pressure. And so looking at things like that, and then just how do we support folks 
once they're in the classroom, because we know if, if you are excited about the work that you're doing um, and, and are supported to grow as a professional, that's also really important to attracting and keeping great teachers in the classroom. That is one of your recommendations, actually, is to reinstate the educator scholarship programs that used to be in place as sort of incentives. Yeah, we want to reduce any barriers to entering the profession. So if someone is is interested in teaching, you know, we don't want the cost of earning a degree to prevent them or for them to think, well, I'm interested in this, but I don't know if I'd be able to cover a a student loan if I'm in teaching. So I'll choose another field. Um, If you're interested in the profession, we want to make sure that you've got, you know, a clear pathway into getting that degree and getting that certification. So yes, we would be very interested in restoring the programs. They were originally part of kind of the hope kind of financial aid programs um, in in the 1990s and in the early 2000s. Um, And those programs have been ended, but we would be very interested in a conversation about, you know, restoring them. And it may be kind of some targeted, so maybe it's targeting um, teachers in rural areas. We know that rural communities are really struggling to recruit new teachers, um, or maybe in high need subject areas, you know, again, special education, that's been a persistent area for a number of years where it's, it's challenging to recruit and keep those, um, those teachers. And so there may be some opportunities to have some targeted investments, but we would be definitely supportive of, you know, reducing barriers to entering the profession. You also mentioned teachers have other opportunities outside of education, but also one thing that your survey found is that about 20% have other jobs. Yeah, compensation is an important piece of the puzzle. And we we don't want folks to need to have a second job to just be able to to manage their their affairs. One of your recommendations, which I think is really important, and I've heard from teachers a lot, is protecting planning time. So many of them say that planning time is being eaten up by other meetings and trainings and things like that. And they just can't ever kind of feel like they've gotten caught up. And that is, you know, is something that we hear so often and from so many teachers. And it's, I think it flies under the radar screen a lot of the time, um, excuse me, you know, to provide good instruction and every teacher, you know, wants to provide good instruction. You need time to plan for it. And that planning time and teachers, you know, they don't get that much of it to start with, you know, it might be one period a day. So you may have, you know, 50 minutes to try to get all of that done. But the loss of that planning time is really challenging. Um, That means teachers are staying even later at the end of the school day. That means they're giving up weekends. Um, They they need time to grade, right? They need time to sit down with the work that students have generated. And that's not in the instructional day, really. So as, as you said, that loss of planning time really does have an impact on teachers' day-to-day work. Claire Suggs with the Professional Association of Georgia Educators. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having us, Martha. We're glad to, to really talk about these important issues for Georgia's kids and Georgia's teachers. And that was Claire Suggs with the Professional Association of Georgia Educators speaking with WABE's education reporter, Martha Dalton, about a recent teacher survey. We're back in a moment. And 
Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As we just heard from WABE's Martha Dalton, the Professional Association of Georgia Educators surveys teachers and administrative staff throughout the state each year. Now we turn to another report, the 2023 State of Education for Metro Atlanta, released by the Atlanta-based organization Learn for Life. At the core of the study, how the pandemic continues to be a factor for specific student populations, even erasing some of the gains made prior to 2020. Learn for Life Executive Director Ken Zeff recently joined me to talk about the trends they observed in Metro Atlanta school districts. This is 2023. When you think back to 2020 and, and as I think in March of that year when schools had to shift and figure out how to do this, not just obviously here in Georgia, but throughout the nation and even around the world. When you think about to then, to now, <laughs> how do you sum all this up? Yeah, we know a lot more now than we yeah. did when we were going through the pandemic. Like you said, it's coming up on three years in, in the middle of March. And what we've, we've learned as we've gotten our hands around the data is that the pandemic affected kids unevenly. Mm-hmm. Some kids who came from well-resourced homes who were doing well before uh, are, are roughly back to where they were and on track uh, before the pandemic. But for kids who had been historically deprived of resources, mm-hmm. kids that have always been deprived of resources, the, the impact was devastating. We see, you know, specifically in math, mm-hmm. but uh, especially in, and also in literacy, we see a lot of the impact is really felt on those kids. We're going to dig into that a little bit later, uh, but I want to just set this up for our listeners. First, a little bit about Learn for Life here. Yeah, so Learn for Life is a partnership of the school districts in Metro Atlanta, the eight systems in Fulton, Gwinnett, Cobb, DeKalb, and Clayton. And we, we come together uh, as, as district leaders and also in, in different levels of management mm-hmm. to look at data to figure out what's working. The idea is if we can figure out what's working, we can invest in what's working, we can scale that to impact some of the education disparities we have in Metro Atlanta. And I want folks to understand with the school districts here, we're talking about APS, That's right. Clayton County. Cobb County, school, City Schools of Decatur, uh, DeKalb, Fulton, Gwinnett, and Marietta City Schools. Public schools. That's right. And that represents about uh, about 600,000 kids, which is about a third of the kids in the state of Georgia. Wow. Now, also, let's talk about what you all were assessing. What were those areas you were looking at and the data that you needed to gather from? Sure. We, we look at it from cradle to career. And so you think about kindergarten readiness, third grade reading, eighth grade math, high school graduation, and post-secondary enrollment completion. The idea is, what the research says, if you get those right, if kids in a community are performing well on those measures, those kids are going to be successful. What did you use to deter- in terms of looking at the perform- performance measures? Excuse me. What were you looking at? So for each one of those measures has a, has a, a different source, but generally Georgia Milestones, which is the state assessment for uh, third grade reading and eighth grade math, high school graduation, and then the the, uh, the state keeps track of kids that enroll and complete in post-secondary. Is Georgia Milestones, and this is your opinion, is that the best data source out there for now? And I don't know if people have different, please don't, that's a whole other segment about standardized testing and all of that. But as of right now, is that the best metric to use? So it's it's a question of could it be better? Absolutely. The, the advantage of the milestones assessment is that every kid has to take it. And so we do get a, a universal assessment of where kids are. I wouldn't overinterpret it, and I would look at it more for direction. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's not about, hey, Johnny's behind or Rose is doing great and Ken's doing poorly. It's about how we're doing system, systemically and mm-hmm. the trends. And I think it's a pretty good measure for that. 
and because we test them year over year, although we didn't test in it right after the pandemic, but the last couple of years we've tested, I think it gives us a pretty good gauge of where mm-hmm. kids are. Obviously, we can always do better, but sure. if we're looking to get the the at a high level of, of the direction of where kids are going, and by the way, the Georgia Milestone data it maps with national data too. We okay. look at other assessments. Uh, there's the uh, the national report card. Uh, there's MAP. There's other data sources too. And for this report, what academic school years did you look at? So we've been do, we've been doing this as our sixth year in a row mm-hmm. that we've been looking at this, and so we compare year over year. So the pandemic years are obviously part of this. Correct. Correct. Let's start with the bright spots. Let's begin there. You said I saved that for last. No, no. Let's look at the bright spots. Uh, you, you said that there was some uh, progress, some bright spots yeah. that you all see in the Atlanta schools. Can you let's give our listeners some insight into that? Uh, absolutely. And I think, and I appreciate you, 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 you bringing that out, Rose, because too often this conversation is, and it, is, it should be sober, but there are pockets of excellence. There are really extraordinary things happening that are demonstrating uncommon success for kids. Uh, we, we, we're really excited about the work that's happening in literacy around the science of reading. Uh, there's a, an a initiative called Literacy and Justice for All, which is based in Marietta. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that every adult facing a, a child from age zero to age 10 is trained in the science of reading, which is a, 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 set, of, a set of instructional mm-hmm. uh, approaches that focus on phonics, explicit phonics instruction. It's led by our friends at, at the Cox campus, the Atlanta Speech School, uh, funded by the United Way and the Whitehead Foundation. Mm-hmm. And it's really making sure that teachers are receiving world-class instructional tools to bring kids along in literacy. And so, you know, that is making, we're already seeing it in Marietta in this first year, yeah. tremendous growth. It's also in Atlanta Public Schools now and KIPP. And so we're really excited about what, what we're seeing in literacy in those early stages. All right. So that's one bright spot. Uh, any other one? Sure. And then let's go to the other end of the of the cradle to career continu- continuum and in uh, post-secondary success. Uh, during the pandemic, you know, the FAFSA, which is something that is essential for mm-hmm. kids to receive financial aid, yeah. 1100 less kids completed the FAFSA than they did uh, before the pandemic because they didn't have that adult. It's a very complicated form. It requires your tax information. It requires... It was complicated years ago. (laughs) Hasn't gotten any easier. Right. And and so what we're we're asking is kids that really need these resources to fill out this really complicated form. They may have trouble getting access to financial information. They may be undocumented. Well, we see some strategies and strategy called College Bound with the Scholarship Academy and and the United Way coming together, providing extra support for kids, nights, weekends, sitting with kids to complete those forms and we saw 500 more forms completed uh, this past year and what was that was due to programs That's that correct. were in it's the district let's talk about we know what the we know the pandemic did hinder progress but you all have some suggestions or some what you would like to see initiatives I think that's a that's a more positive way because we know that the pandemic we know that it, it had a, an, an effect on different student populations so what are you all suggesting here what sort of the change? As you know, I remember a few years ago when the whole term, edu- I'm an education reformer was a big deal. And everybody that I talked to, I'm an ed reformer, Rose. And I'm like, really? So, you know, you have all these new buzz initiatives that come around every five to ten years. What are you all suggesting here to help this student population that's still dealing with the effects of the pandemic based on their learning environment? What are you all suggesting? So if I had one dollar to spend... I would spend it on making sure there's a highly effective teacher in every classroom. Mm-hmm. I know you. I know you come from a family of educators. I lo- love the show. Listen to you talk about your background with with education, your family. It, if we need to make sure that every kid has an opportunity to be in front of a highly effective teacher, teacher retention is really taking a hit right now. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so I mean to. 
Our education reporter, Martha Dalton, has been yeah. reporting, done a great job about what school districts are trying to do to retain teachers. Is it burnout? It, yeah. What is happening here? So a, a our friends at PAGE, uh, which is Education, Associ- education Association, uh, released a report, and two-thirds of teachers said it was burnout. It, the salary was way down on the list. So salary is important, and we got to get salary right. And uh, mm-hmm. all the teachers li- listening out there, we want to make sure that you're funded appropriately. But reason teachers are leaving that they report is because the job has been undoable. It is going, you know, the, you look at the stress level of teachers as mm-hmm. reported uh, versus regular workforce. It's double. Mm-hmm. They have not only are they dealing with kids who are behind, they're dealing with parents. And by the way, teachers went through the pandemic too. Yeah. And they and so all the, all the feelings that we had doing our regular work, they felt that in, in the classroom, and they're dealing with kids who are who are further behind. And there's all this other swirling mm-hmm. uh, drama that that winds well, up. Well, and the so many students need wraparound services. Right. Let's be clear: their communities mm-hmm. need wraparound services, and everything that affects their household affects the 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 aptitude for these kids to learn. So, if we're talking about housing, yep. or unemployment. Or health and wellness as it relates to if a parent, you know, contracted the virus or what have you. All of those right. things impact the student, which impacts how they learn a- and their ability to learn. A-, a kid shows up with all of those things in their backpack every morning. And so we look to a teacher. You know, think of all the things that we've laid at the footsteps of our schools. You know, like, you know, the mental health issues, the trauma, mm-hmm. the seen and unseen, the housing crisis, economic issues, health issues. And so we look to our schools to to solve all of that and that's a real big challenge and so you know back to your question what what do we need to do we need to make sure our teachers feel supported we need to work on their wellness we need to ensure that teachers got into this work because this was their calling and this was their mission and it's it, it is it is it is critical work that we need to make sure they're respected valued and appreciated and also can we talk about readiness even how students from different backgrounds and, and households and communities when they enter K through 12. And I know you all talked about kindergarten readiness here. That's a factor as well. And then even for pre-K. Right. And and this is where I think the parental role becomes even more important, that as students come in, the parents are students, first teachers. We need to make sure parents have the tools to be engaged. And, you know, and I'm a parent of three Atlanta public school kids myself. It can be a challenge. It can be a challenge to engage with schools. It can be a challenge engaging for your, with your early child care provider. I would, I, I, would, I would encourage everyone to be a partner. That presume good intent. Schools don't always nail it when it comes to providing pathways for, students, for parents to get engaged. But presume good intent. Advocate for your student. And be a partner because schools can't do this on their own. We need our parents to be engaged. And this is not something, Ken, and I was going through the report, you all are very clear, this is not just about we need more money. Now, you right. do need funding. The districts need funding for so many other uh, programs and initiatives. But again, and this is a word that I've probably said at least 6,200 times, it's a holistic approach but how easy is that for a district? I mean, for APS, it's going to be different than it is for the city schools of Decatur because they're much smaller. So getting the buy-in from the community and their partnerships may not be as stressful or hard to do as if you're an APS, or maybe it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it, money is certainly important, but it's not. We believe that there are bright spots out there, and if we can share, and that, this is really why Learn for Life exists, is so these districts can come together 
and learn from each other because there's really not a forum for that. Too many times, and I know this from my time as a, as a district leader in Fulton County, too many times when you come together with other districts, it's in conflict. Mm-hmm. We're creating an, op- an opportunity for districts to come together, share based on data what's working so we can learn from each other and scale initiatives uh, accordingly. I'll leave it for others to advocate down at the state house for, for more resources. But I think right now, if what we'd all like to see is that every dollar gets spent on programs that have evidence-based uh, uh, experiences. I'm curious, as we're going to wrap up, are there any challenges that are unique, though, to Metro Atlanta schools that perhaps you're not seeing uh, statewide or nationwide? That's an interesting question. I mean, the the our 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 secret sauce is our diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, our schools across Metro Atlanta look very different from each other. Mm-hmm. So I think that requires a, a an environment where we're really listening to each school, each principal, and trying to customize the program for them based on uh, on research. But I couldn't, you know, as we sit here today, I am optimistic about the future because I do see the the level of commitment, the level of innovation, the level of creativity. We're, we're rising to meet this moment, but we've got a lot of work to do. Anything else from the report that stood out to you or that perhaps you wasn't expecting to see in terms of what the data revealed? Yeah, I mean, I think the the devastation around math has really surprised us that math uh, really took a hit um, and maybe because it's such a linear pro, a linear set of uh, experiences that you have to you have to move through the number line to move to fractions to move on to, to you other say factors. Took, when you say took a hit you mean in terms of based uh, on these, these scores that's correct yeah in yeah. any particular grade or just eighth grade is what we focused on grade. the idea is that eighth grade math is really important because you learn those higher order algebraic skills critical mm-hmm. thinking skills that you're going to need to be successful through the rest the program. So when we saw math uh, take a hit and what we, as we convene our, our networks, what they're telling us is the secret answer is highly qualified teachers. We need teachers that are engaging, that can help uh, bring kids through the content to help them catch up. But if it's eighth grade math that you said took took a hit, what does it say about then perhaps the preparation for these, these students Leading into that, sure. there's some challenges there. For saying. sure, for sure. We, we look at one moment in time just so we can, uh, so it's easy to report. You can get a wash, and I know you know this, you can get a wash in education data. These are these are with, uh, these are are with critical measures that we look at, but it comes back to that highly effective teacher in every classroom. That's the secret sauce to, to get uh, to get our kids back to where they need to be. Ken, who needs to see this report and, and in terms of those changes and suggestions, where does it begin? I think education is our collective responsibility. You know, something like 30, 40% of our state budget goes into education. If we're going to build the Metro Atlanta that we deserve, that our kids need, we all, you know, our business community, our parents, our, our uh, policymakers who I know are doing their work as, a, as of today, all need to pay attention to the fact that our, uh, our kids are struggling and they're going to need the support of us all to come together and make a difference. Does it start then with that QBE formula? <laughs> <laughs> Look, if, if, if I had to hang my hat on QBE uh, revisions, um, I, uh, we might be waiting a while. I think we can always be smarter about our funding formula, but it ultimately comes down to what the adults are doing in, in each classroom across our Metro Atlanta schools. All right. Ken Zelf is the executive director of Learn for Life, an education partnership working with Metro Atlanta schools. And you can find a link to the full state of the education report on our website, wabe.org. Ken, as always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, you're a gift to, you're a gift to Metro Atlanta, Rose. I appreciate that.
And that's it for this edition. Closer Look is produced by LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as y'all often do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe wherever you like because it's free. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.